Hey everybody, this is Keith Rainwater at the Band Cave once again with the Designated Drummer Podcast, and I have a really unusual but very special guest with me today. Um, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, his name's Seth Allen. He is a director of strategic communications for NASA, and 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 you probably what does that mean, and how does that equate to music? And we're going to try to answer that here. So welcome to the podcast. Good Thank to have you. you. Thank you, Keach. It's a, it's wonderful to be here, and I I'm a director of communications for our own company, okay, Quindar right. Media, and I I do communications for NASA among some other clients. But I've been with NASA for about 22 years now. Wow! So th- years. there's a range of of experiences which are fun, and and I got there uh, by playing drums originally, which right. is a really strange story. But you don't think about drummers going to NASA, and they don't put a job advertisement know, out for that's what NASA. drew me to yeah. you, and I had heard about what you did. My girlfriend, Rebecca, who was telling me about um, that she had met you, and she kind of did it, and she sort of said it in general terms, like he teaches drum lessons to astronauts. And, <laughs> and, and, and of course, there's a lot more to it than that, but I mean, that's kind of just the, the sort of shorthand of how she explained it. And I thought, okay, I got to have this guy on my podcast for sure. Well, it's funny because I, I came to NASA first as a video editor, but I was a video editor because of drums. Right. I, I grew up in Memphis and moved back there after I'd attended Musicians Institute. And there was a producer in town named Wayne Crook. And Wayne, a fantastic guy, just the sweetest Did you grow guy. up in Memphis? I did, off and on. I yeah. also grew up in Camden, Tennessee, back and forth. So, oh, cool, okay. Which is a, you know, it's a small town. A lot of musical talent out of there, out of yeah, Camden. Right. But um, I'd gone back to Memphis after Musicians Institute because I was trying to decide Nashville or Memphis as a drummer. I didn't think I was quite ready for Nashville. And I had a, a friend who said, if you come to Memphis, I'll see what I can do about getting you on some sessions. And he introduced me to Wayne. Wayne had been on the Stax label, and he formed this studio. Stax called, Records, yeah, yeah. yeah he formed a, a studio with some other guys from Stax uh, called Shoe Productions. Mm-hmm. And amazing talent in the studio. And they had this legacy that I wasn't aware of when I started there. Um, but Wayne gave me the first chance to do a, a real session. Right. Like a record, right? Uh, it was mostly jingles oh, at the time. Oh, okay, right. And okay. that's how they were paying their but bills. Those are the hardest thing to do, right? You know, for because me, timing I, and everything. I gravitated toward that. I really love it. I have a short attention span, so to get something down in twenty-nine and a half seconds was a, a challenge that I really enjoyed. I did not realize, though, that the other drummers that they had were people like Steve Potts, Greg Morrow, and all these great Memphis drummers. And I probably would have uh, been way more nervous if I'd known that that's their other choices on that. But uh, Greg had moved to Nashville, uh, and I think there was an open spot to try somebody else out for that. So when I moved there, I did that. I taught lessons at Memphis Drum Shop and worked at Lane Music, which Scott Lane owns a music store here in Franklin, Tennessee. He's a good bassist, uh, an amazing guy, too. So all these people gave me entertainment. They gave me opportunities to try music in different ways but but i'm kind of digressing um because wayne since he also did jingles he also produced the videos for these commercials and that sort of introduced you into the whole world of of visual arts like uh, video and film and stuff like that had you done anything before uh, with video i'd never even thought about it it was the farthest thing from my mind but uh, wayne came up to me one day and he said are you a full-time musician and I said, yes. And he goes, that means you have plenty of time during the middle of the week to care, help me carry lights and cables on these video shoots. And I thought, that sounds interesting. I'll try it. It sounds fine. Uh, and one thing led to another. He was doing 
pretty high-end things, you know, corporate videos for places like AutoZone and International Paper and that type of thing. And he introduced me to a lot of people, Andy Black and Clay Elder and other people who are doing high-end stuff. Uh, Clay, Clay did MTV productions, you know, sports and music festival type things, and a lot of shows that were inside edition, hard copy, Good Morning America. So, but they, again, I had no experience. But these guys took me under their wing and said, here's how you do this. And they showed me and they were very generous, I'd say, in, in teaching me that. So I had this dilemma as a drummer because you don't, you never want to sell out, right? If you're wanting to be a drummer. And I thought if I'm doing video at the same time and I'm learning this, is it selling out? And my wife, Amanda, today's our 31st anniversary. Oh, actually. Well, happy uh, anniversary. Wow, thanks. 31 years. She said, uh, you're not selling out if you're learning new things and doing new things and just following your curiosity. And, and that's what I did. And, but I have to say, Memphis is such a great town to grow and learn, and there's so much legacy there that uh, it was really a special place to be. So back in those days, are you talking about when before digital came along, before like Avid and stuff like that, when you had to do like three-quarter and – Video editing? Yeah, like, it was to tape. And, and I remember yeah. the first session I ever had, uh, Wayne called me in to do some car commercials. And I was, of course, nervous, but I didn't want to show it. Called you in as what? A, an editor? Uh, as, a, as a drummer. Oh, you know, to I play see. drums okay. on, yeah. on the, some of these commercials. He'd heard from a friend that, uh, that I could play and, or that I was wanting to play. And I remember uh, when he hit record, and I'm, I knew I needed to follow click track and things like that. So I practiced with the metronome. What I didn't realize was, uh, especially in analog days, how important it was to hit the drum, not just consistently, but with enough sound to print to tape with a good character. And I'd always been told when I was playing, you're too loud. Not from people in bands, but you know, from the neighbors. Okay, <laughs> from the, right. Yeah. You know, grandparents or, or people who are, you're a drummer, so it's loud. Wayne stopped the recording and, and came in and he said, let me show you something. And he, he hit the drum. He said, okay, hit it, hit it a little bit louder. You know, try, try it this way. And, and I knew to hit it consistently, but I didn't, I, I, again, I was playing kind of soft and I think not as into it as I should have been. Right. And he took me back to the control room and, and played it for me both ways. And he said, do you feel that energy? You feel that vibration when you're hitting it hard? Do that. And I'd never known that. You know, people always said play soft, and, and so that's that's really the studio where I learned how to treat the drums set as a full instrument and a complete instrument as well. I see. And uh, they just gave me a lot of opportunity there. But Wayne also introduced me to the video side, and, and one thing led to another. I started doing more video and kind of splitting splitting my work, either playing down on Bill Street, or teaching at the drum shop, uh, teaching private lessons. You know, just driving to people's houses and teaching lessons a lot. I kind of did a mobile. Uh, drum teaching thing for a while and uh, but it was all so fascinating and and Andy I think and, and Wayne and these guys Clay Elder they would step back and say all right let me show you how to do this the boom pole needs to be this close you know not so close it's in the shot but so I, I split doing that and uh, around 2000 I was working at a, a television station in town the ABC affiliate and doing a lot of fun work uh, Again. This is in Memphis still? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of fun work playing drums, but also a lot of uh, fun television work. But I wanted to work in HD, which was emerging at the time. And I, I, again, I'd been telling people that. And my wife, again, 
came in and said NASA's working in HD. She'd been to a dentist office and saw a government video magazine about NASA working in HD. And she threw the magazine down onto the table and said, you should just work for NASA. And I laughed, ha right? Very funny. <laughs> and the next day she sent a job posting to me and the equipment was the exact same equipment that I was using, which is also a weird story because it's, uh, they had a nonlinear editor set up at the station and actually hadn't been set up. It was in a box and they were so busy that nobody had learned to use it. And it, the Abbott and there, system or something like that? It was a Media 100. Oh, kind of I remember precursor. that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I went to Avid later, but uh, nobody had used it because they were so busy to, they, they didn't have the time to learn how to use it. I see. There wasn't a, a length of a break in the production for them to go, okay, we got to stop and learn all this new equipment and then we're going to apply it. Yeah, I see. And that was the new guy who didn't know how to do anything. So I said to the production manager, do you mind if I uncrate this? And I stayed up all night, literally reading the manuals you know, about the size, would fill a backpack to learn how so to. So you're the guy, uh, basically, you are the guy that brought, that, that introduced basically HD to, I mean, uh, the, uh, nonlinear editing to NASA, right? Oh, there If there it wasn't for you, there. then they would no. still be, they probably wouldn't have ever had time. <laughs> there, there are a lot of other people at NASA because they were really cutting edge and they were doing what I wanted to do. But uh, to make the long story short, I was hired on my reel. I didn't know anybody at, at NASA. And started producing children's television shows and uh, and editing things. And I've been really blessed in that career. I uh, won several Emmys from, from that. And it's really due to the, the talented team, which kind of brings it back to drumming. Because I always thought when you're in a band or you're, and you're the drummer, you're, you're a leader whether you think you're the leader you're or not. You're driving the bus pretty much. Yeah. If a song's playing and the drummer stops, the song stops. Or yeah. if the drummer keeps going and everyone else has stopped, the song is still going to the crowd. They, you know, so you do have some sense of... Uh, Power, right. Yeah, and responsibility. Yeah. So, so uh, as a drummer, even in the, the teams at NASA, I, I started thinking, well, I started seeing this trend, actually, where people would hire really talented people. Uh, and this happens in, in music, too. Um, but then somebody has an idea of they're going, they, they're, they have their vision for what they want, and they kind of micromanage the team, or, or they aren't flexible, or the artist gets frustrated because they feel like they want to do what they're going to do. And uh, there's always, not always, but I saw very often that there is this uh, constraint or stress on that. And I thought, how did we bring what I've learned from the drum chair to these other creative teams of artists and editors, graphic artists and editors and sound people. And, and uh, there's some lessons from the drum chair that you can really apply immediately. So I think what it. you're saying in a way is when you were talking a minute ago about how you learned how to make the whole drum kit one instrument, and you're almost kind of thinking about a whole team instead of all these little tiny pieces all as one instrument, one thing, right, and how to pull that it together. Is. is that what you mean? It is, and there's analogies you can take. For instance, if, if you hit a drum too hard, it's not going to sing. Right. But if you don't hit it hard enough, it's not going to give you the power. So there's, right. as, a, as a leader, you have to really think of your team and, and how hard is pushing them too hard or how... Uh, are you letting them do what you hired them to do? Yeah. And, and just keeping that in mind. And then maybe pushing them a little out of their comfort zone, of course, too. But you don't want to do it so much that they get jaded or frustrated. 
there's that there's that zone right so you wow. uh you know playing drums to start can be really easy matter of fact one of the courses that i teach i uh, started as a lunch and learn where we would teach engineers and scientists who'd never played any instrument how to play drums uh, you know quote unquote in in 30 minutes during wow. their lunch hour and if we weren't really teaching them to be Neil Peart or anything, yeah, but right. um, but it was nice because you could get them started. You could say, "Okay, do this," and with your right hand, and just ha- have them doing a steady tempo. And then we add in the left hand, and the bass drum, you know, one and three, and, and the, the snare drum on two and four. And then they're playing the beat, so they they you can see the lights in their eyes kind of come together because they're learning something new, and it's kind of fun. Um, but it might feel a little cheesy to them at the beginning. Then you play songs like Back in Black or... Which or, is ba- the basic drum, the most basic drum beat there is, when the most fam- mm-hmm. one of the most famous songs there is, right? And then you play Billie Jean, and then you play some country songs, and then you play other things. And then all of a sudden they realize that they can play hundreds of songs right. that they didn't know they With could play. With that same beat, right? Exactly. <laughs> and and that, that course, we really started talking more about not being afraid to try new things, especially when you get people in a room like that and they're... They don't want to be embarrassed because there's that phase where you're trying something new and you don't want to be bad at it. You don't want to be judged. Yeah. Yeah, right. Especially in groups where, such as astronauts, where they're um, used to being the best person in the room at whatever it is. So you've got to get past that ego. And and there's a saying, you've got to get through the suck to get through the good. And just getting people to, to be willing to try something new that they don't necessarily have to be good at at the beginning it's like tennis when you're uh, at the beginning you're satisfied with just being able to hit the ball over the net right so with drums it was kind of the same thing and then you show them more things and more and there's this upward spiral of being able to get good at something and enjoying it and the more you enjoy it the more you do it the more you do it the better you get at it and so on and so on Wow, that's awesome. So I want to go back a little bit. You, uh, it says in your bio that also you went to Hollywood and, and was that percussion. Uh, you went to Percussion Institute of Technology, PIT. I did. And uh, what? What? Because there were other percussion institutes like the one on the East Coast. Why did you choose Hollywood? Uh, I was. A, I wanted to be a rock guy. Right. I grew okay. up on Bon Jovi and Poison, and and right around '93, Dream Theater had just come out, and I hadn't been playing very long. But I wanted to be better than I was, um, and it was—it was. I was actually trying to decide on a career, and this, you know, there's points as a drummer where you have to decide whether you're going to keep on doing it or not. And I was I had just gotten married, and I think uh, my my father-in-law asked what I was going to do for a career, and I <laughs> think maybe he would have rather me say I would have been a bank robber than be <laughs> a musician a at the time. Um, <laughs> You know, for good reasons, because it's not necessarily the easiest career to navigate and, and be successful at. Um, so I was looking at things. We managed a Baskin-Robbins. Uh, my wife and I were looking at buying a Baskin-Robbins ice cream store. And we're going through the process of that. But I woke up at a cold, in a cold sweat at 3 a.m. one night. And she said, what's up? And I said, I don't think I want to be known as the ice cream man <laughs> the rest of my life. She said, what do you want to do? And I said... Uh, I want to go to Hollywood and be a drummer. So I, I, we went out and visited uh, the week later, and two weeks later we'd moved there wow. you know, for the summer program. And uh, 
and the teachers there were so great too. <laughs> I, I uh, was intimidated a bit too, but it was so much fun. Uh, you had teachers there at the time, Joe Picaro, uh, Chuck Silverman was there. There was a guy named Owen Goldman who still plays. Uh, he's a wonderful drummer. Now, Joe, you've been talking about Joe Picaro like uh, Jeff Picaro's dad, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this, this is about a year after Jeff had passed away. Wow. So I didn't want to bring that up to him. Right. But of course, everybody was, wanted to express condolences and, and that. But uh, Joe was, uh, I think, teaching my sight reading class at the time. And just a wonderful man. I mean, can't say enough about that. Um, and all the teachers there were great. I, I was passing by one of the rooms where they're teaching the singers. There's a vocal program there. And I just heard the shuffle beat come, you know, as I was walking down the The, the Rosanna shuffle beat? It, it, was, it was actually Billy Joel. I think it was River of Dreams or, okay, yeah, or something you. like that. But it had so much energy. I, thought, I had to pop my head in and say, who is this playing? And it was Owen. And I was like, oh, this is just amazing to be here with people who can make you feel like that from, from down the hall. Wow. I get that same feeling around Nashville when I'm walking down Broadway. You had Kelly Bamberger on. Yeah, uh, yeah. Do you know her? Uh, not so much. I've met her. And, but I, she was one of those people. I was walking down Broadway and I just heard this groove and I had to stop and turn around and go see who it was playing. Yeah. And it was perfectly sitting well with the band and the song. And But it just was one of those things where you just the energy made me turn around and go back and see who it was. And it was like, I have to find out who this is playing. So yeah, she's amazing. You know, she has one of the most, the highest downloads or listens in my podcast. Really? You know, when you go back and you look at the numbers, Kelly Bamberger was one of the highest. Well, that's no surprise. You know, it's, <laughs> she may not have a name that's known, you know, as some of these famous, you know, Vinnie Kelly Uda or, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, at that, but uh, it, it, there's no reason why she shouldn't be because her groove is just yeah. a mile And wide. strangely enough, it's, it's the most unique situation I've ever seen that she could be playing with anybody. She could be playing with Shania. She could be in a dozen or so girl bands, you know, because she's a really good girl drummer. And those are seem to be hard to find. I mean, they're, they're a little bit more common than they were. But she could be playing with about any artist she wanted she wants to, but she chooses that she wants to stay home and she wants to play down on Broadway and that's her career and that's what she wants to do. And I'm, I totally respect that. And that's it's the neat thing about Nashville is there's so many different ways that you can play drums. Yeah. You know, for me, I'm not playing on Broadway, but I'm I'm teaching at conferences and I'm giving presentations and and I'm not doing that because I'm a famous drummer. I'm doing it because I have the experience of working with engineers and PhDs and, and people who are uh, in these large, complex organizations. And my job uh, for, as a communicator is to simplify things enough to where and communicate. Um, so I'll, I'll go interview somebody who's interviewed, who's invented something, for instance, and ask what inspired you to invent this and you know, that type of thing. Um, and if it goes over my head, that's okay because I'm a drummer and I can say, I'm a drummer. Can you explain it to me? <laughs> okay. you know, I, I have this joke. I say, I can, I can count to four over and over again. Uh, and usually the, that gets a chuckle and the, uh, this, you know, a PhD who's, you know, this super smart, they'll break it down and try to explain it in a way that I can understand. But the trick is they've done half of my job for me. Right, at that I point, see, yeah. and and if they can explain it in a way that resonates with people, uh, and help me do that, then then you know so much the better. 
Yeah. I always make the joke of like, you know, why did you decide to become a drummer? They ask. And my answer is, well, I wasn't very, very good at math. So I said, well, what's a job where I could just count to four? And there's like a drummer. And I'm like, okay, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it says here, I got a, uh, I, I like this saying in your, uh, your bio, it says, um, one of your abilities is to cultivate and foster creative teams within bureaucracies. And I wanted to know more what that meant. Like, I kind of get what that means, but can you explain that more? Yeah, I saw a lot of people in creative jobs um, who would get burnout or jaded, uh, either through frustration or or the management would be upset because their teams were either flat or risk-averse and wouldn't try new things. Um, so one of my jobs, well, it's kind of a, in a way, a sad story that has turned out to be better. I was a producer for the STS-107 space shuttle mission. Um, I did uh, video packages for that that explained their mission and interviewed the crew. And for those who may not know, the STS-107 mission, the Columbia mission, was the one that broke up when it was coming in. Okay. And the crew perished on the, Lost on the, the crew, way in. Yeah. When was that? That was in 2003, in February. Okay, right. And um, I thought that my job was over as far as working with that crew, and they were a pleasure to work with. Just a great team dynamic. Um, but when the accident happened, since I'd written scripts that explained the mission, I, I was able to help out in the, the newsroom at Johnson Space Center to talk with media and reporters about what the crew was like and what they were trying to accomplish in Maybe space. Maybe some of the risks and things like that. Yeah. Some of the risks. Um, but after the mission, uh, we did do return to flight, STS-114. But the agency, in some places, the they're a little risk-averse after that, gun-shy. And for good reason, but there were some people who were really worried about uh, NASA losing its edge as far as innovation and creativity. So a few of us uh, started doing everything we could kind of under the radar of let's how can we make sure people know it's okay to be creative and to be themselves and uh, how do you do that? And then I started looking more around, around NASA too about some commonalities. How do, you, how do you choose a crew for a space mission? You know, it's not that different than picking guys in a band. That's true, yeah. Uh, what's the first thing you look for when you're when you're playing with a band? I think a singer. Like like you have to have. If I was putting a band together, I would probably first look for a vocalist that can connect with the audience that sings the kind of style that I want the band to be. You know that. that so it's can, identity, right? It's yeah, an a, identity. It's a it's a presence. And, and being able to have that kind of sets the character for what the band's going to be. Another thing, if you're going to be on the road for people, is you want good roommates, right? Of you course. Want, good teammates and and that's just as important as technical ability in some ways is the ability to get along with other people and collaborate and uh, take a shower <laughs> every once in a while uh, so when you're when you're picking a crew uh, it's it's really important to have a diversity of people but you know I, I, I like to go around to blues jams around town yeah and I noticed something when I was going to the blues jams that uh, the people who led the really good ones uh, and there's there's so many names I can mention who lead good blues gems around town, but they have a system in a way to where, for instance, if there's a new guy and nobody knows who that is, now for those who aren't familiar with blues gems, you can get up on stage, you sign a list, 
and they will put you on stage, sometimes with people you've never met before, most of the time with people you've never met you before. You say what instrument you play and whatever. Yeah, and they'll call out a tune, and, and basically you just, if you don't know the song, they'll say it's 12-bar blues in E, go. <sighs> so you have to watch and you have to listen. I did notice that the people who were running the jams, if they didn't know the person or a person, they would make sure that they were set in, uh, sitting in with people who really knew their stuff. I see. So, you, so when you have a space, uh, you know, a crew for a space mission, it's the same thing. You have a proven leader who's really good if you're going to have a rookie on the, on the mission so that they can help and mentor. And if the rookie is really good too, then you just have something special. And same thing with the Blues Jam. You have something special on stage if they're all listening and communicating. Uh, so there's, there's so many parallels in that. So when watching Apollo 13, the movie, how do you, do you, you know, with that team that they put together, they had the rookie and then they had the, uh, the, the, you know, Jim Lovell that was like the, the commander guy, you know, uh, how realistic was that to you? Uh, now Apollo 13 was actually really, uh, it was very realistic. I, I've done interviews in mission control. Uh, they have an older mission control that was set up really from that era. It still looks like that. That's kind of underneath the other, the space shuttle mission control that they used to have. Uh, and it looked exactly the same. A lot of the things were the same. The only thing is you wouldn't really have the arguments. That's uh, what I heard. I've heard that, that, that basically Ron Howard said, you know, that there had to be some kind of drama in there. He had to kind of create some kind of drama when it really wasn't very realistic. Yeah, one of the things that I always laugh at when I see Apollo 13 is um, when they're launching and it slams them back into their seats. right. And in real life, astronauts strap in as, as tightly as they can. So there's no gap. There's no. Yeah, they don't want to slam back into their seat <laughs> like that at all. So. But they wanted to show, the director wanted to show once they passed that stage and they, and they kick it in, into the power like that, then it's just like, oh, okay, you know. And that, that was one of my jobs at, when I was at Johnson Space Center is the, I was leading, uh, as team lead for the video production. So that's the producers and the video editors and, and such. And a secondary job that we had was escorts around the center. So we, would es- we had a badge and we would escort film crews, for instance, like Discovery Channel or somebody would come in. And we knew where the power outlets were and we knew where the best angles were for the shots and things like that. So that was the main job. But I, it was really interesting to do that because you could see how teams work together outside of NASA. And you could see um, sometimes celebrities would come in, sometimes bands or athletes or things like that. Uh, and, and I just really paid attention to their, how they treated people and interpersonal dynamics in between the teams. And what struck, what it struck me was the people who were really famous and comfortable with that uh, were really good at making other people feel welcome and things. It was the, uh, you know, the rookies who may not be as comfortable with it that, that kind of struggled. Um, but same thing in Nashville. I, I did a video for NASA with Clint Black one time, um, and it was an educational video for kids. At the time, we just announced we were going back to the moon the, the first time back in, I think it was 2004. Uh, so we were trying to explain things like what would the X Games be like on the moon, just to show the, <laughs> the physics of, you know, how That's is moon... That's a great moon, way to put it, you know. Yeah, it was things like how's moon dust like snow, and what would happen if you did a ski jump on the moon? I was just going to say, how far of a ski jump could you make on the moon? It would be like miles long. Right? I, I don't know how far, but I know it would be fun. Uh, wow. But we did a video with Clint in at Ocean Way, and I got to come yep. up to Nashville and, and shoot it there. And the reason I mention it is uh, 
I didn't realize, I knew Clint had done some TV, but he was so professional and so on the spot. We did one take of this video and he was d done. I didn't have to do another one. I did just in case the tape, we were still on tape at the time. It was, you know, let's get a spare. But uh, his ability to make people feel comfortable it just made me realize no wonder he's successful in the business. Of course, yeah. Clint Black. I have a little story about Clint Black that is, is amazing to me. We were playing the um, RCA, the record, record label we were on, that does a boat show every year. They called it the RCA Boat Show. They, during CRS, they invite uh, radio people, you know, the labels, the artists, and the radio people would all only invited on this boat. And they would get on the General Jackson, and they would take off, and they would have, like, shows because they have a stage on there. So we would play, and one, one year, Clint Black, who was on our label, was there doing a show, and we had the same dressing room. So we were, you know, there's limited dressing rooms on, on a boat, right? So, you know, I had to kind of double up. And uh, Clint Black was there, and we were just kind of hanging out before our time to play in front of all the radio people. And he started playing some James Taylor. He just started just playing songs and stuff like that. And someone said something about James Taylor. He just came alive and he started singing James Taylor. And I mean, you could not tell it wasn't James Taylor sitting there singing. He can do, talent. I'm telling you, if, if who, people out there listening, if you ever meet Clint Black in person, ask him to do some James Taylor and he will come alive and sing James. You wouldn't be able to tell that it wasn't James Taylor. Oh, and he did so much extra for us, you know, with, with TV production, especially when you're doing it for a client, they're, they have things that are set. So, we, for instance, we had our own theme music already for this series that we were doing. It was called NASA Brain Bites. And, uh, That's for the, ki the kids show thing? The kids show that yeah. Clint was helping us on. He did a series. His video was about how is my guitar like a rocket? And it was about acoustic resonance oh. and how that's good in a guitar but not so good in a rocket because you don't want your rocket to oh, shake up and I break got, apart. Okay, I see. And uh, he, was, he was just really uh, amazing at doing that. But uh, he even offered to uh, play the background music for the show. And me being a musician, I, I grew up playing trumpet before I ever played drums, so I have some understanding Same, of Same here. I started uh, out trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, he offered to do the music, so I went back, of course, and like, okay, let's check and see what key it is, and see if I can, if I need to fade from our theme music to his music. So I said to Clint, "Could you play it in A?" You know, and he said, "Sure." Pops a capo on and, and does it, but he was no ego whatsoever, and just just giving. So I, I don't know Clint. It's been it was probably 15 years ago, but it was one of my highlights of of working at NASA was working with him because uh, he was just such a good leader and worked so well with other people. Yeah. That's one of the things I find about country music. Not to say that rock artists, there aren't some really kind-hearted people out there, but I, I think I've been in the country music industry. I've met a lot of really, really super amazing, especially songwriters. They're so humble and, you know, even record producers. It's just a great industry to be in. You, you mentioned playing trumpet, and uh, that's, what I, that's what my scholarship was for in college and I, I wasn't that good at it once I found out about drums it was all about drums and, yeah. and I went to you know I'd say I'm a drummer and they say we don't need drummers can you play something else and that's exactly what trumpet. happened to me yeah exactly um, I wanted to be a drummer and they said we got enough drummers pick another instrument so trumpet was kind of my backup but there's so many drummers that play other instruments that uh, you know Greg Bissonette plays trumpet I didn't know that. Wow. And uh, awesome. Billy Sheehan which is not a drummer but you know in the band with Greg for for uh David Lee Roth, he plays trumpet or wow. did play. And you just find these stories about people and there's this thread, this thread of people who try new things. And I just find it interesting. I, if I had advice for drummers, it's 
don't just play one thing, you know. And and if it's there's a chance to try to, you know, dabble in bass. You mean instrument wise or genre wise? For well, both. Okay. Really, definitely both. That was one of the good things at Musicians Institute is is how they had a class on styles, so you would have various styles of music to play and. You know, to have Chuck Silverman be the person teaching you Afro-Caribbean music, it's, wow. or Alex Acuna came in and did a clinic, wow, and it's like, yeah, the percussionist. Just yeah, it's amazing to okay, you're learning from some of the best in the world, and uh, I, I would go watch Greg Bissonette play outside of school, places like uh, there's a club, I think Club Cordial. You talk about Hollywood, City. right? Is that kind of your Hollywood days? Yeah. Yeah, and and you just go watch them play, and and there's just. Something about being able to soak up and and watch people in their element live and kind of up close. Uh, I took lessons with a, a guy named Bobby Rock when I was out there. I remember the name. Yeah, Bobby Rock. Yeah, Bobby's playing for Lita Ford right now. And again, I haven't talked with him in a long time. But uh, Who again, did he used to be with? He used to be with some rock band or something, right? At Who was the it? time, he was with Nelson. That's the Nelson what it was. Brothers. Yeah, Nelson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And those guys have moved here to Nashville, too. Uh, but I... Uh, Bobby was, a, of course, a phenomenal drummer and a clinician, and he had this larger-than-life look with big hair and mm-hmm. muscles and huge <laughs> drum set. Uh, but when I met him, and I took lessons at his house in Studio City, which uh, is where the band Nelson rehearsed and things too, but uh, we just sit there and, and learn things. And I remember I hadn't been playing that long, and I, I was still nervous, but I, he, would, he was just such a giving teacher. Yeah, you know, and the, uh, he could play things that were sounded really complicated, and then he'd break them down to where they're so simple. You know, yeah. there's that saying: if you want to impress somebody, take something that's really simple and make it sound complicated, or take something that's really complicated and make it sound simple. Yeah. So one requires a lot of mastery, and the other requires kind of some wisdom, I think. Yeah. Um, but th- there's some you know really good life lessons from Bobby just hanging out at his house and. Wow. and and talking with him and having the time for him to, you know, I remember playing a groove and looking over and he's just closing his eyes and nodding his head. And, and then when I finished, he said, that's what that sounded like in my head. Uh, you know, that's what I wanted it to sound like. And that was just like the best compliment I could wow. have ever had from you know, one of my drum heroes wow. saying it sounded like what yeah. I heard it in my head. So uh, that was a special time. To do That's that. very cool. So um, you had mentioned, you may have already answered this question about how you got started with NASA, your wife plopping down an article or a, a, like a thing that said, you know, looking for, but I, I'm just curious to how a drummer like yourself gets into NASA. Were you always interested in it or did, was it just that you just applied and they just said, yeah, we need somebody? Yeah. I, I, so I got there. I didn't know a soul at NASA. I, I applied as a video editor. Uh, and it was really just based on my reel of the shows that I'd made. And I have to credit that to having the chances, again, for people like Andy Black and Wayne Crook. And there's a, a studio that used to be in Nashville called Dragonwick Teleproductions. Mm-hmm. And and the people at Channel 24, they would just let me try things. So my demo reel was, not to brag, but it was fun. And it had a yeah. lot of things in it, and I got to play with it. And, and that just caught somebody's attention at NASA. Um and the drumming wasn't really part of it. I think that I did mention that I was a drummer in the interview because I, I, when I first started at NASA, again, I had this pain of, am I selling out to do this? I actually sold my good drum set to pay for the moving truck 
to go to NASA. Okay, I see. It was a Pearl uh, Master Series. Which and the NASA, you're talking about down in Florida? or This was at Langley in Langley. Uh, Hampton, oh, yeah. Virginia. We were just there. Yeah, it's the, the first that NASA Air Force Center. Base. Yeah, okay. it's a wonderful place. And, and so I'd worked in, at Langley for about seven years, and I worked at Johnson Space Center for about seven years. And fortunately, these days, I as can As an work, editor, right? Uh, that, first as an editor, yeah. and then a producer, and then after the Columbia mission, more uh, just corporate communication type things. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite jobs at NASA, again, was was going around the country and interviewing people who had invented things using NASA technology, because oh, you get so much from those conversations and, and hearing. And, and again, it's that thread where I go, wow, this, this could be applied to music or vice versa. And it's funny because most of these inventors I've talked with play music. Most of the astronauts that I've ever worked with play music. I, I'd probably say and it's a it's <laughs> it's what they call a wag. I, I don't have any statistical data on this, but I'd say at least nine out of every ten astronauts that I've ever talked with play the music. Play music. They even have an astronaut band. Is that right? Yeah, it's a, a cover band called Max Q. And <sighs> see, I can't be in it because the requirement is you have to be an astronaut. I see. First and foremost, really technically an astronaut. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. And. Uh, but they have to, you have to be a real astronaut, and you have to be not assigned to a mission at the moment because they're so busy when they're training. I got you, They yeah. can't focus on both. But the band's good. They had the, the first guys who started it, Jim Weathery, um, is a drummer who, who helped start it, and Brewster Shaw, and uh, I could name names, but uh, the band is can be really good at times, but they switch out members depending on who's who's on the mission. Yeah. And, that. So, um, yeah, and they've played you know, band shows type things on, uh, not Max-Q, but individual astronauts on the space station. They have instruments up there. So uh, there's astronauts who play flute or uh, drums or guitar or keyboard. It is uh, interesting on the space station, though, because if you're playing keyboard and you press against the keys, you're going to float away from the keyboard. Oh, wow. Because of the lack of gravity. So you have have to kind of strap down whatever instrument you're playing. You don't need a guitar strap. Because yeah. it'll just float if you let go. Of so the in that case, if somebody's in rehearsal and they say, "Come on, man, it's not rocket science," I can say, "Oh, actually, it is." <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's one of our favorites. That is so cool. Um, I don't. Uh, I can't, you've done so many things, and you know, a TV producer, you won awards and stuff like that. And um, I don't even know where to. The next question to ask you because it's so complicated, but um, you like working with kids and you like teaching people and stuff like that. And uh, I do. I, I've I've worked with the high school drum line off and on over the years. Uh, another guy, a band director in West Tennessee named Keith Breeden, is just one of my heroes and one of my best friends. And uh, I'll back up a little bit because how I started playing drums. You know, I mentioned I played trumpet. Right. Uh, I always wanted to play drums, but I had a twin brother who played drums. And when, you know, we stand in line and beginning band and they said what do you want to play and he was in front of me and he said he wanted to play drums so then when I got there they said oh we don't want you to let this play the same instrument and uh, my brother Spence was a fantastic drummer uh, and unfortunately when we were in college and we had plans to you know own a recording studio and be in bands and everything but we were in college and uh, uh, had come home from Christmas break and uh, we're going back to visit from visiting my grandparents and a drunk driver crossed the road and hit us head on. It was a horrific wreck. I I won't go into details, but it was, it was just terrible. And he, he was killed in the wreck as was the person who hit us. Um, So I'd been playing trumpet and dabbling in drums 
but I came home literally from from his funeral and went to his room and his drum set was sitting there and it had the sticks on it and we played in bands in high school and things but I thought you know he wouldn't mind if I picked up the sticks and tried to play a little bit right so I did it's just starting to play you know just simple things uh, but that's one of the reasons I had this desire to get uh, good fast quickly because I wanted to honor his memory and I didn't want to play drums and do it poorly, especially since he was known as a good drummer. And uh, Keith, the band director, uh, my brother had been teaching the drumline. And he said, can you come teach, can finish what he started and teach, teach the drumline there? And I didn't know how, really, oh for drums. I, I dabbled, but I didn't play. And I, thought, and I told him that. And he said, just go be with them and, and try that. That was in Brewston, Tennessee at the time. So I did, and I, you know, I'm studying the books, and I'm watching drum corps videos, and I'm trying to do everything I can to not do a poor job at teaching these kids. And it was a wonderful experience. And now, 30 years later, I'm still connected to those, those groups and those guys, and some of those kids have gone on to be band directors, and some have they've taught other people. And there's this thread uh, that goes through, through it, where, uh, for instance, one of the guys I taught taught another guy, who plays for the Gaither vocal band now, Matthew Holt. Phenomenal okay. drummer. He plays the piano with their band. Um, and then he taught a guy named Tremaine Johnson, who's the percussion instructor at Belmont now. And you just yeah. see this thread through time of people just passing along their joy of music and drumming. And to see them do that with other people is probably the most fulfilling thing. So, yeah. so what is your day-to-day schedule like is it sort of all over the place or do you find yourself with like nasa projects like all the time is it like back to back or are there breaks in there where you do other things well so i have it now where i'm doing four days a week of nasa communication projects and a lot of times that'll have nothing to do with music or, or drumming you know back in the day when i was doing tv production i would create my own music for my shows right. which worked out for us because they didn't have to pay you know, pay residuals Is for that anything. where you sort of played all the instruments and you sort of did it yourself? Yeah, I had a keyboard in my room and oh, I would just cool. program things. And uh, it didn't always do that. There's a phenomenal audio group at, at NASA too. Uh, just they're geniuses like you would expect. Uh, the same people who do space-to-ground communications and things also do uh, video production audio. And, you know, top of the line, really talented people. But they, they indulged me and let me do that sometimes. And it worked for me because it's work for hire. So I didn't, I didn't expect a check later from it. it yeah. But I got to have a keyboard in my office and play uh, for those those uh, those songs, and so sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with that. Uh, right now, I'm working with the program at NASA, uh, their disasters program, okay, which is uh, satellites that look toward Earth and monitor hazards such as tornadoes and volcanoes and things like that. Um, but it's really about risk communication. And being resilient right. and and that type of thing, um, so it can get complex when you're parsing data and saying how do you do this. Uh, but I try not to lose sight of the creative side. Yeah. And then I have one day a week that I really focus on what we've been talking about, really the uh, helping people be creative and despite bureaucracy. Yeah. Uh, helping managers bring the best out of their teams, um, and there's a lot of different components to that. Yeah. Is it sort of like problem solving in a fun way or in a creative way, using creativity to solve problems? It is. It's, it's about problem solving and collaboration. And I never do forced fun. 
we've all been to these corporate things yeah. where somebody says, okay, put on a green hat and yeah. you're in this group and, and you can look at people's faces and find out whether they're having a good time or whether they think, oh, they're looking at their watch. I need to get back to the real work, <laughs> they think. Um, but there's a lot of components to that. One of the things I talk about is jargon. And, you know, every, every uh, work field has its own jargon. You, you've done video sure, as well. Yeah, so, you know, uh-huh. you have... Their own language, their own... Yeah, you, you know, have, even in Lone Star, even in the band Lone Star, just 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 specifically Lone Star, we have our own language. You know, and when we say certain things, we know what we're talking about. And that's the thing about jargon is it can be good or it can be bad. It's good because it can bring some kind of sense of community. You know, if you're on a video shoot and somebody says, "Hand me a C47," or, or uh, I was on a video shoot with a guy named Clay Elder, and he said, "Give me that Elvis and Priscilla." I'm like, I have no idea what he's talking about, <laughs> but he was talking about the reflector that you use to balance the light and one okay. side is gold and one uh, is silver. Okay. <laughs> so Elvis is gold because of his gold suit and Priscilla was the nice oh shiny God. silver. Wow, that's funny. And everything has their own language. You know, NASA is infamous for their use of acronyms. We yeah. have we have four different projects right now called JEDI. You know, there's okay. one called Global Economic Disruption Index and there's a, another one, you know, means other things. Um, so jargon can be fun and make you feel part of a community. But if you're not part of that community, it can be exclusionary. Yeah. So you can feel like you're outside or you're not connecting and that. So we talk about that type of thing where there's places in risk communication where an acronym or jargon can remove you from the situation a little bit to where you're not as emotional about it. Oh, okay. And that can be helpful in a situation where you don't need the emotion to get in the way of what you have to get done. Um, but it's not helpful, for instance, uh, if you do need to be emotional and show that, you know, a caring spirit or something yeah. like that. So, you know, that's one point. We talk about communication and, and I talk about how to lead a team versus, for instance, uh, how to lead a blues band versus an orchestra. Okay, yeah. So for, a, and it depends on what you need to do. So astronauts, when they go on a mission, they'll train for six months and they have lists and they go into this million gallon swimming tank uh, swimming pool at Johnson Space Center called the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, and they practice and practice and practice, and you know for months for a mission, they even have checklists on their on their suits when they go outside, that, so that you know they've got a PhD, but they still have step one, step two, step three, just to make sure because it has right. everything has to be very precise. Like the order of operations is like key, right? Yeah, like an orchestra, every note has to be perfect. You need to know what to expect, but if you're trying to lead a team where they need to be agile and creative. That's and more innovative. like a blues band, right? It is. Yeah. So how do you do that? You don't, you don't want to tell the guitarist, here's the solo I want you to play. But you can say, this is in the key of E. It's 12-bar blues. So you could almost say jazz, too. Like, that's jazz. is kind of a free form. It's not exactly note by note written out. If, yeah, leave that room for improvisation. That's why I love the natural number system so much. Yeah. Now, so I've met, we've mentioned this before on my podcast where people will talk about the Nashville numbers system. And just for if you, in case you haven't uh, tuned in to any of those podcasts, we're just going to kind of I'm going to explain a little bit about it. It's so that it's a chart that everybody in the studio can read, including the producer, the engineer, the drummer, the bass player, the piano player. It, it's a basic representation of the song written out in a numbers chart like a one is whatever the key of the song is in. It's an E. Number one is E, and then you got one, three, five, seven minor, six minor, seven, you know, that kind of thing. And it, it basically is a language like we talked about. It's a certain language that everybody in Nashville who's ever a session player in Nashville has learned over years of doing it, you know, to read. 
Yeah, and, and like any language, it has dialects. I think different sure, sessions, yeah. different like football, you know, or you know, yeah, diamond. You, you could go to a session in one place and it'll be slightly written different than another. Yeah, yeah it's right. A football diamond, uh, a lot of kind of jargon for what it might mean. If you say you know Batman ending or you know yeah, something Batman, like that. Yeah, we all know it that well. I've heard Paul Lyme mention that where where the music goes dunk. Exactly. And that's Batman. Yeah. Exactly. Um, But the number chart, the reason I really like it is because you're not necessarily counting. You can see, it's a roadmap, and you can see when the song changes. So you're you're having to look and listen and watch people around the room, and you have that chart so you don't get lost. You know what people are going to do. You know what is expected. You know what's coming up next, basically. Yeah, but yeah. it's not prescribed note for note. So there's room for that improvisation in between things. And I think that's one of the things that makes Nashville so great compared to a, you know, a session in a uh, traditional session in LA where they might not have the charts, you know, in, in the old days, they didn't have Nashville number system and they didn't teach it in MI when I was there. They probably do now. Um, but they would have notes, note by note transcriptions. Yeah. Um, which really didn't leave that that much room for creativity. Or if you had to you change the it. key of the song, you had to rewrite the whole thing, right? Exactly. Whereas so, the number system, you change the key, the chart remains. Yeah, so when people were leading creative teams, and if you want them to be able to improvise, give them a structure. That way they know where the boundaries are and nobody's uh, worried about whether they're going to sink the ship by drilling holes below the waterline, for yeah. instance. But... Um, but you, so you have that structure, and they know they're free to play within that structure. So it's, in a way, it's like a corral. You, you, you have a limit, you have a fence, but you can move within that. You know, you just can't go outside it. Right? Exactly. It's kind of a corral. Yeah. We like to, I, I like to think of it as uh, orbiting, too, uh, to bring it back to NASA a little bit, where you want to be creative enough to where you're flying and you're out there. But when people are working for a client, the gravity of that client, the identity and what they're trying to go for is, is think of that as earth. Pulling you back in. It's going to pull you back in. So you don't want to be so far out there where you're just out there on your own and you're going to perish out in space because it's so weird or so strange that nobody's going to like it. But you don't want to be mired into the, the gravitational pull of the organization so much to where you can't be creative. I see. And it's, you know, there's a lot of analogies too where in space you can, they speed up to slow down, for instance, to land. Uh, when they when they get closer to Earth, from the physics, it's like taking a string and, and swinging it around your head. And if you let it loop in, as you're getting closer to to the center, you're going to go faster. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, space yeah, yeah. traffic is kind of the same thing. Uh, there's a lot of weird analogies there, but orbiting is you don't use a lot of energy to orbit because you're using the gravity. Technically, a spacecraft is falling constantly right. but they're going 17,500 miles an hour so as they're falling the earth curves away from it so they miss the earth i see yeah. so they're always falling but they're missing the ground and in an organization if you can get it to to where things are moving that way it's you're not having to struggle and push things so hard yeah so if you can get people in that that orbit between creativity and but not forgetting who they're working for and what they're trying to accomplish that's the that's the bright spot yeah. that's the orbit uh, I talk about Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel in the courses, and people forget he was a contractor. Right. He was working for a boss. He right, had, exactly. He had constraints on what he had to do. It was do. just a job, right? Yeah, they didn't just say paint whatever you want on the ceiling. So uh, to be able to do that and be successful, you know, a lot of people struggle with that. But if you 
embrace it, you might be able to create art that lasts through the centuries. Wow. Yeah. That is awesome. Well, man, I, I don't want to take too much more of your time and thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. And I hope, uh, our, uh, listeners out there have got a little bit of educated on this whole idea of like drums and NASA and this whole creativity thing. It's been amazing. Well, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank it's, you. And uh, well, what's what's coming up new for you? What's what's your next thing you're you're looking forward to? Well, I do the uh, I, I do conferences and you know, what we call lunch and learn sessions and you know corporate retreats where we do that type of work uh, through a company I have called Quindar Media. So uh, there's that. Um, I still like to play around town and keep my edge. So I still like to do blues jams. You know, as a drummer, as a drummer, yeah. you know, honestly, I'm at the age now where I kind of want to go full circle and find friends to play with in a constant band. Cause like Nashville, a cover band, just a nice little yeah, cover band. Just, yeah. Just for, for fun. And there's an art to playing cover songs and, and enjoying it too. Sure. Um, so, uh, one of the things I really loved about playing music in the first place was you get to hang out with your friends and do something that's, that's cool and fun, you know, yeah. talent shows and things. So. That other people can enjoy and yeah. Yeah, but I'm not looking to be, you know, a famous touring drummer or anything. And and I do like to be able to sleep in my own bed and that type of thing. But uh, it is so much fun to pull in my courses. I literally have a drum set there and I'll pull people up and we'll, they'll play drums or I'll grab a bass guitar and we'll have a guitarist that I bring along and we'll play blues for people who've never played it. And we'll use that as an analogy for a lot of different things, for instance. Wow, that is amazing. Well, I wish I could come. Uh, hopefully, maybe I can connect with you and maybe come see one of these blues. Sure. Uh, the, or these uh, NASA, um, or not really NASA, corporate, you know, things where they play drums. And, yeah, and it's know, not I'd just. I'd love a, to see that. It's not just at NASA, but it mostly has been aerospace companies that I do this at. But again, it's any organization that's really complex. And they don't like to say bureaucratic, but, yeah. but if there's a lot of rules and, and it's really complicated. Um, to work there, uh, that's really an opportunity to try to make sure that the creativity flourishes. Yeah, to be that's so important, so important. Well, thank you again so much. And uh, it's been Seth Allen and Keith Rainwater. Uh, I wish I was from NASA, but uh, Seth Allen from NASA. And uh, man, it's been so awesome. And uh, we'll see you next time on Designated Drummer. Thank you. See, see you guys.